Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Hey, today on the podcast we have uh, the beginning of a new series we're going to be doing on the gospel. Today I'm doing something called the gospel in chairs. Now, this is a very visual kind of demonstration, uh, which I'm hoping I can put a version of it that's actually a video up later, but it should make sense in some, some sense. So let's go ahead and head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Well, this is Palm Sunday, and this is the time in the Christian calendar where we celebrate where Jesus came into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. This is a day when, when uh, Jesus was welcomed, welcomed into to Jerusalem as the Messiah. And if you put yourself in the shoes of the early disciples, it, it must have been pretty exciting at the beginning of the week at least. Because they've been walking around with Jesus for three years, seeing Jesus heal people, seeing Jesus, you know, eat with the wrong crowd, uh, seeing Jesus, uh, you know, do all these miracles, hear all these messages on the kingdom of God, these parables explaining what, what life with God is like. And so I imagine in the, in the, in the understanding of these pastors, I mean these pastors, these disciples, uh, that, that they were thinking, man, we're coming into Jerusalem and people are beginning to welcome Jesus as the Messiah. In their minds, that meant we're taking over, you know? And you can tell by the kind of questions that they're asking Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, uh, how about I get to sit on the right side and my brother gets to sit on the left side? Uh, they weren't talking about going to heaven, by the way. They were talking about, like, when you take over this thing uh, and you become king and you run out the Romans, uh, can, we, can we be, like, a part of your, uh, you know, inner circle here? Uh, and so that's the expectation they had at the beginning of Holy Week. But we know that the same crowd that said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the world. The same uh, name of the Lord, not the name of the world. <laughs> uh, the same crowd that welcomed him at the beginning of the week. By the end of the week, they're going to be saying, crucify him. And so it's during this season in, in churches around the world throughout history that oftentimes we focus on the passion of Christ. And that word passion actually means suffering. It's not just like I'm excited about something. It's, it's suffering. So we, we focus in on the passion of Christ, the suffering of Jesus leading up to the cross. And last week, uh, Skip talked about the paradigm shift of the cross, that, that now in, in view of the cross, uh, it changes our understanding of God. It changes our understanding of God's purposes. It changes our understanding of how we are supposed to live in this world. And so we're going to continue to talk about the cross in, in, in one way or another for the next few weeks. And, uh, but, but particularly, we're going to talk about the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And we're going to talk about why this event that, that was, was bloody and horrible that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago, why the heck does that mean anything to us today? What is good news about that? So we're going to find out. But before we get there, I'm going to do something today that, that I found. It's a, it was actually uh, created by a, a Greek Orthodox uh, priest, I guess they call him. Um, anybody growing up Greek Orthodox in here? Pat, don't lie in church. 
<laughs> Greek. Uh, <laughs> this was created by a, a Greek Orthodox uh, rabbi. Uh, and I, I've really found over the, you know, there was a time in my life back when I was a new Christian where I really felt like our one little group of Christians, we got it all figured out about God. And our group's the only group that's going to get into heaven. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church like that. And uh, uh, fortunately, God dealt with that issue in my life. And, and over the years, I've come to, to really find that, that there's a lot of people, Pentecostals, Methodist, Anglican, Orthodox, even Catholics, that have... have <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't grow up Catholic. Um, I have, I've gotten no issues with Catholicism. I didn't grow up in it. But I found, I found that there's all kinds of people from all different streams of Christianity that have certain things to, 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 to speak to us, that, that certain truths. And maybe even some of those denominations have gotten a little weird here and there. But I find that there's certain what, things that we can learn from them. So I'm going to do something today called the Gospel in Chairs. This was created by a, a, a Greek Orthodox priest up in Colorado. And this is just kind of a way of communicating two versions of the gospel. And so I'm going to, to tell you the first version, which would be the judicial version. And then I'm going to tell you the second version, which would be, um, what do we call this? The restorative gospel. The restorative gospel. So in doing this, I'm going to use these two chairs. Uh, the green chair will represent God, the black one, human beings. Um, now, before I get into this first telling of the gospel, now, you're, you're obviously going to hear a bias as I share these. Um, I will say that this first version of the gospel is the dominant one in the Western church, particularly in Protestant and evangelical churches in America. Uh, if you've grown up in an evangelical or Protestant church, this is probably the gospel that you've heard. And, and it's kind of like the on-ramp for, on for many of us. And, and as an on-ramp, hey, it's okay. Uh, because... God can work with anything, thank you, <laughs> you know? But I, I find that, that in the communicating of this, this, this version of the gospel is that there's a certain image of God behind it that I don't think is helpful. Now, here's the deal. At one time, it was very helpful. This, got, this version of the gospel is about 500 years old. It was uh, really made popular by folks like John Calvin, great theologian, and Martin Luther, uh, probably one of the most influential, the two most influential theologians in the Western church. Now, but here's the deal. John Calvin, this is what he said about God. God's primary disposition towards humanity is one of wrath. That, 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 that tells you a little bit about Calvin's understanding of God. When God looks at human beings, he's just angry. I hate you. I'm, you, make me, you make me mad. You know? that's, that's the way John Calvin saw that God looked at people. Martin Luther, it wasn't much better. He says, human beings before God are like snow-covered dung. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, really? Um, but these are the two most dominant theologians uh, since the Ref Reformation. And, and honestly, when they came along, they were bringing some huge corrections on, on the views of God at the time. But, but their version of the gospel was really rooted very much in, in the feudal system in Europe and in the, in the Middle Ages. And under that system, and we'll go into more of this in the coming weeks, but under that system, you had serfs and lords and kings. And you had this whole kind of system of how you would pay back debts. under. Or, and, and, and if you hear the gospel and understand the feudal system, you're like, oh, that, that's a, a feudal understanding. It was great back then. But the problem is we have moved on historically beyond that context. And this version of the gospel, I don't think is terribly helpful 
in helping us understand either the character of God or the purposes of God or how to even engage in following Jesus in this life. Now that said, many of us have come to faith through this version of the gospel. There is power on it, and, and, and it is part of the truth. I don't want to just say, like, ah, throw it out the window. No, there's truth in here. But I think as I, as I begin to share both of these, you'll kind of see some of the, the issues. So this first version of the gospel is the, the judicial form of the gospel. In this, God creates human beings in his image and in his likeness, and he sets them in a garden. This garden is called Eden. And uh, human beings, they sin against God. And so they turn their backs on him. And God, because he's holy and righteous and cannot look upon sin, God turns his back on humanity. And so the story going from Genesis chapter 3 all the way up through the Old Testament is one of human beings trying to turn to God through religion, through ritual, through sacrifice, uh, through self-righteous acts, and yet we know they never fully connect with God. But thanks be to God, he sends his son Jesus who comes into our world and lives the perfect sinless life. Jesus lives the life as a perfect human being, never does one thing wrong. And what do we humans do to him? We crucify him. We nail Jesus to a tree. But in dying, God imputes the sin of the entire world, past, present, and future. He puts it all on Jesus. And so when we find this, this verse where Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Under this view of the gospel, it's like God turned his head from even his own son, whom he loved, because he can't look at sin. And so Jesus bears the, the, the sins of the whole world, the penalty of sin, and he goes into the grave. But thanks be to God, he's raised up by the Lord. And under this understanding of the gospel, if we will but turn and believe this, then we can have everlasting life. That's, that's the judicial form of the gospel, right? Now, I want to say something about this. I absolutely believe Jesus was a substitute. But what's problematic about this version of the gospel is who Jesus is saving us from. Because under this version, it's very easy to understand that Jesus is not just saving us from our sins, but he's saving us from an angry father. And those of you who've grown up with angry fathers, this just reinforces what you thought about God all the time. <laughs> and so is this really good news in the end? If the only reason somebody accepts you is because they let somebody else be killed uh, who paid your price, do you ever feel like you can be around that person again and be comfortable, you know? I, 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 I don't think so myself. That's the judicial form of the gospel. It's the dominant version of the gospel in our world today. Now, the, the, the restorative version starts out very much the same. God is holy and righteous and good. He creates human beings in his image, puts them in a garden, and he puts them there to be stewards over creation on his behalf. But human beings rebel against his plan. They sin. They turn their backs on God. So God expels them from the garden, and they will face futility in every endeavor that they have from that point on. But God doesn't turn his back on the human beings. In fact, when they leave the garden, he goes with them. He provides clothes for them. He provides them a way forward. We, we see the story of the first murder committed in the Bible. It's by this guy named Cain. 
Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. And, and Cain has got this problem with jealousy and anger in his heart. And God comes to Cain. He says, Cain, don't let this anger, this jealousy overtake you. It's going to take you down. But what does Cain do? Cain turns his back on God. And in doing so, he goes out and murders his brother. It's the first murder in the Bible. But what does God do? God finds Cain. And he places a mark upon his head so that Cain will be protected wherever he goes. And we see the story throughout the Old Testament. It is one of, of God's people, even ones who God has called to be a part of his plan to, to, to get the creation, uh, the, the, the redemptive plan going forward. Even the people he call, he's called to rescue the world like Abraham, Moses, and David, they're all flawed characters. I mean, my God, David, the one called a man after God's own heart, he would be in prison today. He would be in prison under our system. <laughs> he committed adultery and had his, his lover's husband killed. But we find that all throughout the Bible, as human beings turn from God, God faces them. We actually find the language developing in the Old Testament that God looks at Israel like a, like a, a wife. And yet Israel acts more like a prostitute. And yet God says over and over through the prophets, even, even though you go into idolatry over and over again, even though you take other lovers, I'm going to find you. I'm going to face you. That's the God that we, that, that we have in the Bible. But the picture becomes much more personal in, in the New Testament because God sends Jesus I want to tell you a story about a couple of people in the New Testament. One of them was a, 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 a man who was, he was insecure, he was lonely, and he was corrupt. He made his living by getting rich off of the oppression of his own people. His name was Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. I like to envision him like Danny DeVito or something. But Zacchaeus, he wasn't just a, you know, tax collectors were bad enough, but he was a crooked tax collector. So, I mean, in that time, the, the tax collectors made money off of their people getting overtaxed by the Romans. But, but he wasn't just doing that. He was actually skimming off the top. He was like as, as thug as you could get. What is God going to do with this one who persecutes his own people? Well, one day, Jesus comes to town, and he looks up in this tree and he sees this wee little man and he says Zacchaeus I want to come to your house for dinner I want to break bread with you I want to be your friend we see another story of a of a woman who has had five failed marriages She's just going from one dysfunctional marriage to the next. In fact, she's shacking up with a dude that ain't her husband. What is God going to do with this woman? We find out reading her story that, that not only does she have a, a, an immoral and, and wreck of a, a reputation along those lines, but she's also one of the hated people that the Jews look down on. The Jews look at these people and they're just like, you're, you're, you're scum, you're dogs. 
Even her theology is messed up when we read the story. We realize that her ideas about God are all wrong. So she, she, she has the wrong doctrine, the wrong theology. She's the wrong person in the wrong group of people. And she's living an immoral lifestyle. What is God going to do with her? Well, here's what God does with her. Jesus comes to her village. And he finds her in the middle of the day. A time where you wouldn't find anybody drawing water. And she's out there drawing water. Why is she out there in the middle of the day? Probably because everybody in town talks about her. Probably because everybody has shamed her and ostracized her and excluded her from company. So she's going out the one time where ain't nobody going to be out there. But Jesus shows up at the well. He says, woman, can you give me a drink? But he doesn't stop there. He says, if you will ask me for a drink, I'm going to give you something better than the water of this well. See, you drink this water, you're going to get thirsty again. But if you drink of my water, it's going to break open a, an artesian spring of living water and you will never go thirsty again. There's another guy that is in a desperate situation. He's possessed by demons. Many demons. And he is... Uh, He's kind of probably the guy that the kids in the town talk about, <laughs> that parents warn their kids, if you don't stop sinning, you're going to turn into a guy like this. He's a mess. His life is utter torment. They find him in the graveyard, naked, scratching himself with rocks. He's just involved in self-destructive behavior. He's, he's, he's like a madman. What is God going to do with this one who's possessed by demons and hanging out in the graveyard naked? What does God do with that? Here's what God does. Jesus gets in a boat and he goes across the sea to find this guy. And when he comes to him, he sets him free. The dude is, is liberated from everything that has oppressed his life. The demons are sent packing into a herd of swine and they run down the, off the cliff and into the lake. And this guy is in his right mind. Not only is, is he set free, but now he can actually be, be a part of the community again. There's another story where Jesus is found at a house and he's healing people. People are bringing the, all the people that are, are sick and diseased to Jesus so he can lay hands on them and heal them. And there's one guy who's in such a desperate situation that he can't even go to this home. And Jesus, in the middle of healing all these people, it's a packed house. Jesus looks up and he sees that, that the roof is being torn open by some people. And these guys begin to lower, these four guys lower their friend on a pallet down into the room where Jesus is, thinking if we can just get him near Jesus, Jesus might heal him. And so what is Jesus going to do with this paralyzed guy? Well, here's what Jesus does. Jesus realizes that the, the biggest issue in this guy's life is not his actual physical paralysis. It's rather his guilt and shame. In fact, his guilt and shame may actually even have something to do with his paralysis. Maybe he was involved in something that hurt a lot of people. But Jesus' first words to him is, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. And then he says, get up and walk. And then we find that in spite of all of these healings, 
In spite of all of the the proclamations of the kingdom of God, in spite of just preaching the message that was simply love God and love people, what do human beings do to this Jesus? They crucify him. They turn their backs on him. But what does Jesus do even when he's hanging on the cross? He faces us. He faces the evil of humanity. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And what's more, even as we as humans are dead in our sins, even as we are dead, Jesus, after the cross, shows us that though I make my bed in hell, there you will be, as the psalmist said. As Paul would go on to say later, we've been raised with Christ. We've been crucified with him and we've been raised with him. And the good news on that Easter morning when Jesus comes out of the tomb is there's no place that God won't go. God will follow us even to the depths of hell and the grave to find us, to reconcile us to him. You know, when we have, when we hear this, this quote of Jesus hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oftentimes we, we find that as, aha, I knew it. God was turning his back on his own son because his son had the sin of the world. But we fail to understand that Jesus was quoting a psalm. And if we read that psalm, if we read a little bit, just a few verses down from that, that verse, it says, God says, why have you forsaken me? And he says, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. God can look upon sinners. We see that all throughout the ministry of Jesus, that's what he's doing. That's why he gets in trouble. He's not getting in trouble for hanging out with righteous people. He's not getting in trouble for hanging out with those who have it all together, but for facing sinners, for breaking bread with sinners. Under this understanding of the gospel, we see that Jesus was not uh, trying to feel, fulfill some pagan concept where he placates God's wrath so that God will accept us. Rather, we find that, as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is exactly like Jesus. No different. It's not good cop, bad cop. <laughs> it's all good. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And God shows us how God acts in Jesus. Jesus comes not as someone who is trying to appease the gods like every other pagan religion that the world has come up with. We see that Jesus rather comes as a physician to heal us of the disease of sin. Sin is real. And sin is destructive. And it will eat our lunch. <laughs> if you continue on with the wages of sin, it means destruction. But Jesus has come time and time again. In every one of those stories, he comes not just to forgive sins. We need forgiveness. But to actually heal us. Because the truth is, in this room today, there's plenty of people who know uh, what your sin is. You know you're conscious and aware of, of how you have sinned in many ways. But you know what? 
The sins you're conscious of aren't the only sins. <laughs> and sometimes the bigger sins in your life are the ones that you just totally don't see, like greed and pride. Jesus came not to just forgive us of our sins, but to bring us healing. And this is good news. It's particularly good news for those who've been abused, for those who've been victimized in this world, because our problem is not just that we've sinned, it's we've been sinned against. We've been in a system where we have been hurt. We've been trampled on many times. We haven't just done wrong ourselves. Wrong's been done to us. Jesus has come as the physician, as the freer, to rescue us and to heal us. As Paul put it in Colossians, he says, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, it pleased God in Christ to reconcile all things on heaven and earth through the cross. God is about reconciling us to him. Why does it say reconcile us to him? Because God's already been reconciled to us. <laughs> and if we would just look to Jesus we would find healing. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. He says, uh, as, the, son of, as the, the serpent was raised up in the, in the wilderness. It's an Old Testament story. It's kind of weird, but a, lot, but a plague was going through the camp, and God said, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and, and get everybody to look at it, and they'll be healed. Jesus says, in the same way, if you will but turn and look at me, you will be healed. This is the good news. Not simply that we can be forgiven. That's good news. That is part of it. Not simply that we can go to heaven when we die. That's part of it. That's good news too. But they're all just a piece. Good news is we can be made whole. We can actually experience true life. Not just in the sweet by and by. But right now. Because of Jesus. All we need to do is but turn and look at him. Turn and embrace Jesus. That's the restorative view. Do we have some communion stuff ready somewhere? Okay. Um, Skip and Pam are going to do it. We, we put it back there today so you could see our awesome chairs. But this morning, I just want us to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to be reflecting on this the whole week leading up to Easter. Let's come to the body broken and realize he was broken so we could be healed. Let's come to the blood poured and, and, and see that, that, that it's because of Jesus shedding his blood, identifying with us, showing solidarity with our humanness, not just in life, but even in death, now that we can step into a new covenant based on what he's done. Let us celebrate who Jesus is in the, in the, in the bread and the cup this morning. I want to invite Grace back up here. We're going to... As you, as you prepare to worship this morning or take communion, you can sing along with us or certainly after you get finished. And here's the deal. Um, nobody has to take communion this morning. But if you want to take communion, please come up. Now, I realize probably in here there's some people that you've never responded to this understanding of the gospel Maybe your understanding of God has been God hates me and the only reason he would, he would even love me at all is because Jesus has, has taken all this, the punishment towards me. Just, just know that today that, that God loves you enough that he sent Jesus. And Jesus is all about loving you the whole time. And yes, that love involved a, 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 a cross. But he was willing to go to hell for you. All you got to do today is turn and face him. 
One way you could do this is even through communion this morning. So I just pray that the Holy Spirit uh, opens your eyes to see Jesus today as you come forward. And, and basically, y'all can come forward however y'all would like today. So just whenever you feel like it.